I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Welcome to The Connection. ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, is a diagnosis that's been on the books for decades. It's been used to describe someone, often a boy, who has problems with inattention, impulsivity, and overactivity. That definition has changed over the years because we have a greater understanding about neurodiversity. We know now that there are so many different ways that people interact with the world and the people around them meaning there's no absolute right way or wrong way of learning or thinking or even being. Difference, as it turns out, does not necessarily mean disability. But it's not unusual to hear the term ADHD or ADD bandied about in casual conversation, but does anyone really know what it means? Well, today on The Connection, understanding ADHD. And we asked Dr. David Nall to join us. He's a clinical neuropsychologist with a private practice in Massachusetts where he treats children and adults diagnosed with ADHD. He also runs workshops about ADHD for therapists. And David Nall, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Marty, good to be here. Thank you. You're very welcome. Is it time to uh, rebrand ADHD to do a kind of a makeover? There's been a um, an exciting kind of turn of events. Um, one of the things that comes up in my professional workshops for clinicians is people will say, uh, David, what do you think about people who come to your office and they've self-diagnosed using social media? And I, I think they're setting it up as a problem, but I think it's actually fantastic. Hmm. I see people coming to my office and they know much more about these brain differences than say five years ago. Now I'm not saying that everything on TikTok about autistic spectrum disorder and ADHD is useful or accurate, uh, but number one, I kind of trust my clients to tease out a lot of this stuff. And number two, there's just so much good stuff on there um, from uh, you know content creators, especially young adults and even adolescents who identify as ADHD and they're describing their experience firsthand and sort of beginning to move ADHD into the umbrella of neurodiversity, which initially largely referred to folks on the autism spectrum, but is broadening to include lots of different brain differences. And some of these brain differences have a name like dyslexia, ADHD, and, and some don't. Some are just differences. When somebody comes to my office for an evaluation or for treatment and support around ADHD, it's usually because of the problems. And that last letter in ADHD is important. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you, if you have so much of this characteristic that it's causing problems in two or more areas of your life, then we call it a disorder. But it occurs on a spectrum. If you read the symptoms and features of ADHD, any of us could relate to some of these. So I like you know your question about, is it time to rebrand it? I do think that thinking about it as one piece of neurodiversity is a new way of thinking about it. And it opens up new opportunities in terms of how people see themselves and also in terms of how we support our friends, students, clients, loved ones with ADHD. And I'm actually looking at that list of some of the symptoms associated with ADHD. And I have to say, you know, I could check off some of these and I've not been diagnosed with ADHD, but short attention span, hyperactivity, impulsivity, fidgeting, disorganization, poor time management, forgetfulness, poor working memory, and on and on and on it goes from there. So what is the difference between the sort of normal um, disabilities that we might have and those that really require a diagnosis and then treatment? You know, every single one of those characteristics you read, we could add, compared to what? So right, exactly. Compared yes. to what? Inattentive, compared to what? So we have to think about the social context. 
These brain differences occur in the population pretty reliably across cultures because they serve or served at some other point in human history some function. And I don't think, you know, if you if you know and love people with ADHD, it doesn't take it doesn't take much imagination to think why would this difference exist in the population? How would that support a tribe of 30 or 40 people? You know, we were hunter-gatherers until very recently. How would ADHD serve the community? And I think that sort of answers itself. Well, let me pick up on that because um, you have described a, a, a gene, and, and maybe this is more kind of a casual description of a gene called the wanderlust gene, and whether that's something that we see associated with people who have ADHD, the idea that uh, they're risk takers, they're curious, they don't want to stay in one place, they want to go out and explore the world. And you just described a lot of the clients that I work with. <laughs> Many times when somebody walks into my room and I'm beginning to form an impression of ADHD, it's because they're likable, they're unguarded, they seem youthful, they're open, they're not screening. I can tell if they like me or don't like me. I'm not guessing. It's just a real quick back and forth. If you Google wanderlust gene, uh, your internet will blow up with lots of articles and information. So there's a genetic variant. And one of the contributors to this characteristic, this difference we call ADD, one of them, and there's several genes, plus some early childhood experiences. But one of the genes occurs uh, in greater percentages among those populations of humans that have moved the furthest across the planet. There are Hmm. populations of current humans who probably haven't moved very far from where they originated or where they were 20,000 years ago. But for example, in South America, we find uh, the largest density of this variant. And that's probably the population of people that has moved the furthest across the planet. Probably their ancestors started in what we now call Asia. They walked over to Alaska, down to what we now call San Jose, what we now call Chihuahua. They kept going. There was no Panama Canal. They kept going. Who were these people who just kept going and exploring? And I think we know who they are. Entrepreneurs, they're adventurous. They're, you know, you can call it impulsive or you could call it ready for action, ready for what comes next. Do they have ADHD? Are there higher rates of ADHD in parts of South Africa? This is South America that I'm referring South, to. South America, rather, yes. And, and even on the continent of Africa, there are populations of people that have moved further around uh, the continent, and you'll find higher rates of this genetic variant that we're calling um, the wanderlust gene. And your, your question, is it diagnosed to a greater extent? I don't know. Yeah. We assume that ADHD occurs in about 3 to 7% of the population. But you'll notice even in the U.S., there are, for example, there's an East Coast bias with the exception of california which has statistics more like the east coast it's more likely to be diagnosed in the east and among eastern states it's more likely to be diagnosed in areas sort of with uh, more socioeconomic challenges which makes me think sometimes environmental problems are being labeled as you know a brain difference or a psychiatric Mm -hmm. condition i don't want to get stuck on words but are we better off calling this a trait rather than a disorder or a disability or even anything else, the way left-handedness is a trait, is that how you think of it? It is, and when possible, I use words like that. When ADHD occurs along with reading disorder, there's no reason to say comorbid when you can simply say co-occurring. There's no reason to say disorder when you can say constellation of symptoms or trait or uh, brain characteristic. Um I would reserve language like disorder for when a client says to me, this is really frustrating. There's something I want to do. I want to get my CPA um, certification or I want to complete this degree. I want to do this job. 
and these symptoms are getting in the way. This right now in this setting is a challenge or a disorder. Otherwise, um, I, don't, I don't know if it's necessarily a reason to use that kind of pathologizing language. Sure, and I hear you, and I think that's really important. But should we think of this then as a brain-based condition? If you look at the brains of people diagnosed with ADHD, do they look different from neurotypicals? They do. There are functional differences, meaning when you look at functional brain imaging, like PET scan and SPEC scan, you see differences between ADD and non-ADD, and you also see some structural differences. And there's variations across um, studies, but these structural differences and these functional differences are what make me believe that ADHD is something real, not just eight items on a poorly photocopied checklist. It's not just something drug companies made up. It's a real thing. We've kind of been closing in on it since the 1970s. We still have a lot of work to do. I'm not sure we've named it very well, but I do think it's real. And one reason I think that is because, to answer your question, yes, there are brain differences. And is it that the brains look different or there's a kind of thickness or there are certain parts of the brain that seem to be exaggerated compared to, again, a kind of neurotypical's brain? Yes. So if you compare children with and without ADHD, looking at cortical thickness, there are reliable differences. For example, in the um, ADD brain, there are uh, areas of cortical thinning. What's interesting is when non-ADHD children are progressing, the parts of the brain and the skills that are developing are those which help counteract spontaneity and exploring. You know, by the time you're in the fifth or sixth grade, we kind of expect you to stop being spontaneous and stop exploring. Um, so that's great. That's great that we're able to do that. But I think something's lost and something's gained when we develop the capacity to squelch our curiosity and squelch our... Um, and I don't think it's all positive that by the time you're in the sixth grade, you can now squelch all these characteristics. Well, it seems that we have forced then people with ADHD to live in a world designed, you know, frankly, like people like me who can sit in a chair or can sit at my desk and spend hours <laughs> on a particular task. But I'm thinking about that third grader, you know, with ADHD, and we ask him or her, you know, to sit at their desk and, and listen to the teacher and take notes and do their homework. That's asking a yes, lot. it is. It's a tougher time. You know, in 1960 or 1970, you might have said to a kid in a Philadelphia school, look, finish high school to get as close as you can and get a good union job with a pension and get a ranch house just outside the city for $82,000. But, you know, those jobs are gone. Real estate is different. The pensions are gone. Any job you need, you know, at least high school education, possibly more. And the jobs that pay well are the jobs that involve what you just said, the, the ability right. to sit, wear a headset, inhibit every normal thing that you want to say and say stuff like, I hear your concern. How else can I help you today? <laughs> Which doesn't really come out of the lips of a, <laughs> of a child dealing with this particular uh, trait that we're talking about. But I wonder now, and I'm looking at the clock here, I'm wondering now whether we're now living in a world designed by people with ADHD because there are all these distractions and these things coming at us and pulling at our attention. How do you see it? And I'm thinking, think obviously, of, of social media. Yeah, I, I think, honestly, the, the world we're living in right now, the way we communicate and the way we entertain ourselves is actually designed by people who almost seem to have it in for people with ADHD because all of these things we're describing are even more seductive. They're seductive for all of us. They're you know soft addiction for all of us, even more so if you have the characteristics um, that we associate with the ADHD style. 
even more so. So it means it requires even more uh, commitment either from parents or from self to thinking clearly how much social media is exactly right, how much TV is exactly right, how much time outdoors, um, and, and, and having the big picture conversation. Because it's it's a huge distraction. Is that what it is? I mean, it is for, I think, for all of us. But if you, if you have ADHD, it's just, you know, screaming at you. You know, dopamine is the brain chemical that lets us know we did something. We dragged a juicy elk back to the tribe and we're going to feast for days. And we get that when you get a good parking spot or you tick a box off. Um, when you go to Starbucks after the yoga class with the yoga mat under your arm, and you feel so self-righteous, that is dopamine. So dopamine shows up in all sorts of ways. And video games and social media give us little hits of dopamine. It makes us feel that we're doing something. When, you know, in the big picture, in terms of my goals, I'm not really doing anything. But it feels like you did. It's just so seductive. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take a very short break. I want to pick up on dopamine after this short break. And again, we're talking today on The Connection about understanding ADHD. And our guest is Dr. David Nowell. He's a clinical neuropsychologist. He's got a private practice in Massachusetts. He treats children and adults diagnosed with ADHD. We have much more to talk about after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscoane talking with David Nowell about what we know about ADHD. I want to pick up on dopamine. And my understanding is that someone with ADHD has a lower level of dopamine than someone who doesn't have ADHD. Dopamine, as you described, is sort of like where we get pleasure and satisfaction and uh, as you have said, you know, where we say the word yes with exclamation, exclamation point. Uh, why does the person with ADHD, why do they have a lower level of dopamine? Do we know? We're not entirely sure. And I don't think that it's the levels of dopamine are lower across groups of people. Uh, but it seems to be that folks with the ADHD style are less, um, they're less sensitive to dopamine and need more of it. And when you sit down today to work on some boring paperwork so you get a tax refund in three months, what you're having to do is you're having to create a picture of you getting a tax refund in three weeks, and you're getting reward and satisfaction thinking about this you're going to get in the future. That's harder, and this is hard for humans. You know, I'm going to work out now, so I'm at my goal weight in July. It's hard to do, um, and for some reason, that's even harder for folks, especially young folks with ADHD, and that's where things like social media and video games are more compelling because you don't have to wait to get the reward. Um, it's immediate. So I really want my clients with ADHD to know what sets them on fire. What in your body specifically feels really good, really rewarding? How does that show up for you? And then begin to schedule their lives around that. Well, picking up on your example, then, let's take boring paperwork. I mean, paperwork is generally boring for all of us, but some are able to muscle through. And for some, they're just, they'd rather... And, and probably spend time doing something else. So how do you get someone with ADHD to do boring paperwork? How do they reframe that? So I think of interventions and supports as top-down and bottom-up. So teaching somebody the skill to muscle through a yucky task is top-down. And there may be occasions when I want to do that. 
But putting them in a situation where they can outsource the stuff or barter the stuff they don't want to do, that's bottom-up support. So reduced homework assignments is a bottom-up support. So rather than making you do the hard thing, I'm going to make it easier for you. Medication is a bottom-up support. It It chemically makes it easier to do the thing in your brain. So I like to start with bottom-up support. So in the case of boring paperwork, I might ask my client, is there anybody in your life, your family, who could do this with you or do this for you? And in return, you pay them, you do something for them. Um, because there's so many things that are boring and hard. And for me to ask my client to learn how to do all these terrible things could take the rest of their lives. I'd rather see, what can you outsource, which frees my client up to do the thing they're good at? The thing that sets them on fire. Well, l- let me stop you there, but let's say it's homework. I mean, you can't you can't pay your brother to do your homework for you. You have to do your homework, right? Um, you do have to do your homework, but let's say you're teaching Spanish. And so you say, okay, students, I want you to do uh, um, 40 Spanish verbs. My question to the teacher is, are we teaching Spanish or are we teaching 40-ness? Because hmm. if my student can master conjugation with 20 verbs, but they just can't slog through 40, would reduced homework assignments be okay in a work setting? Is it okay to f- maybe flexibly show up when it's more convenient for you and then you work late rather than requiring everybody to show up at exactly the same time? You know, where can we, and still get the job, but where can we accommodate? Again, that's bottom-up support. It's meeting folks where they are. It's creating an environment that's a better match for them. Where can we do that first? It, would it make sense to break homework into pieces so that the the reward isn't you know three weeks away, but it's just you know it's ten minutes away? Yes, and, you know this would be a top down support. Okay, here's how people plow through hard things: uh, they give themselves small rewards for doing bits of the work, or externally, parents or teachers can. I'm going to reinforce you for doing five minutes of work, and then another five minutes of work. Um. That's, that's sort of a top-down support. It's still hard, but you're teaching me how to do it. I, I should ask you, do you have ADHD? <laughs> I should have asked you I have, that. Yeah, I have <laughs> features of it. I have features of it. I, I don't think that I have um, – I don't think I've had, you know, significant functional impairment in two or more domains. Um, but I certainly have enough of these characteristics that I understand my clients with. When I meet somebody who has zero characteristics of ADHD, you know, God bless them, they're organized, they're efficient, but they really don't understand their loved ones or their clients or their students who have the ADHD style. They ask questions like, sometimes you just have to do it, you know, which is a real top-down thing to say. Uh, but if you have a touch of it, I think you make a better clinician with this population. Well, let's just uh, recap here. And today on The Connection, we're talking about the most current understanding of ADHD, what we've learned about this trait in recent years. And again, uh, David Nowell is our guest. He's a clinical neuropsychologist with a private practice in Massachusetts. He treats children and adults diagnosed with ADHD, and he does trainings for clinicians as well. We asked Anika Arak to join us. She's an award-winning illustrator, writer, author, and self-described baseball nerd. <laughs> she wrote an illustrated piece for the Washington Post that caught our eye, and it's titled, I Overachieved to Mask My ADHD. It's common for women. And Anika, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. You wrote at the very top of this piece that uh, having undiagnosed ADHD as a child made you feel, quote, broken and disconnected. And I have to say, when I read that, I just, it felt so painful to me. What was, <laughs> what was it like for you to, to be that kid? 
well, you know, when you're in it, when you are a kid, you know, you don't have the, I guess, sort of the tools or the capacity to really understand certain things. You just know how you feel. And then when you sort of gain those tools later in life and look at these experiences retroactively, I think that's where the real pain actually comes in. Um, you know, I don't know if I would have ever described myself as feeling broken as a child, but I absolutely felt like I never fit. I mean, all the way through high school, I just felt like a square peg in the world was a round hole um, in, in a lot of ways. But, you know, um, just putting those pieces together later in life, uh, just realizing that um, not only not fitting necessarily socially, I had a lot of friends, but I never really fit in with a group. Uh, I never fit academically. My ways of learning were different than every way that was taught. Um, and, you know, there's growing up in a system that, also, you know, that doesn't understand neurodivergence in the 80s and 90s, first of all, but then also just that the expectations are very formulaic. There's a template for how to do everything. There's a time you show up. There's a way you do the quiz and the test and um, never feeling like I fit that. I always just felt full of shame and, um, you know, bad at it, <laughs> even though I wasn't, you know, I was a smart kid, but I didn't feel that way. Yeah. And, and shame is also one of those words that goes sort of right into your, right into your body. You were a daydreamer, as you described, had, I guess, what might be called now inattentive ADHD. Yes. Yeah. So you were the kid looking out the window while the teacher was teaching? <laughs> yeah. Or doodling? I mean, you know, I, I was really interested in school, um, you know, in particular subjects, especially, you know, like history and art and English, um, so long as I had a good teacher. <laughs> but, um, you know, when I got into things that involved calculating like math and some of the sciences, it was just like looking at an entirely different language. And I would just tune out and um, go to really fantastic places in my head or drawing. I would draw them. I would doodle them. Um, so, yeah. And that. that that is a hereditary <laughs> trait. Well, uh, we have a lot of daydreamers in my family. Well, and I love your drawings. It's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show. David, let me go back to you when we, you know, Anika is talking about being this student in school, a smart kid, but things just seemed um, that they weren't made for her. They weren't directed at her. They didn't help her learn. Is that pretty typical for someone with ADHD? It's really typical, and I think especially for girls, especially smart girls. Um, Annika's article is called, I Overachieved to Mask My ADHD. Yeah. Now, it's it's behind a paywall at the Washington Post, but it's republished at the San Diego Psychiatric Society <laughs> website. So if you want to go find it, it's really good. Oh. Her illustrations are great. And so overachieving to mask, I hear this all the time. Like somebody in her mid-20s will come in and say, I always struggled in school, but I didn't think I had ADHD because I wasn't, wait for it, hyperactive you know uh -huh. the, my brother was hyperactive he got a 504 and he got medication the first week of school i sort of sat there i worked twice as hard to make bees kind of stared out the, i kind of missed maybe 20 percent of what was going on in class i didn't pledge a sorority because i knew i couldn't you know i took an extra semester just working really hard and a lot of folks on the autism spectrum will talk about masking like i can do eye contact and i can nod but it's killing me it takes so much work and that overachievement mm -hmm. To mask inattentive ADD, it's it's just classic. It's heartbreaking yeah. and definitely, yes. Yeah, somebody you know, students were um, were being missed and not supported, um, and are being you know missed and not supported. Yeah, and, and Anika, um, I mean that must have been kind of lonely and isolating. Uh, yeah, you know it was, and I'm an only child, and um, we grew up or we grew up, <laughs> me, me and myself, I grew up in, uh, 
Yes, we all have, you know, alter egos. Yes, that's true. Uh, Yeah, me and my imaginary friends grew up uh, in in an area of, you know, I grew up in Salt Lake City for a while where um, everyone had church and different things, and we were not of the same religion. So I really spent a lot of time alone anyway, which in some ways I think really uh, benefited me because I really had to, to, um, you know, utilize my imagination just to entertain myself. But Um, You know, so that was one kind of isolating aspect, actually, socially as a kid. But then on top of that, you know, just trying to keep up. I mean, I will say the religion that I grew up around, those kids are on it. Everybody masters a musical instrument. Everybody is a straight A student. Everybody, you know, they're like model kids in these families. And um, I was just so different already. And then on top of that, just um, trying to keep up. So, uh, you know, as you're saying that just the amount of energy that is expended just to break even with everybody else. Um, you know, you don't, I didn't take on extracurricular activities. And if I did, I, I quit pretty quickly, which makes you feel like a failure, but you know, it was like, I just was taking on too much trying to keep up. And it was, it was a lot just to meet the bare minimum. Um, and like I said, I, I actually, so if, if a class or, or a structure actually worked with the way that I learned and the way that I produced, I would ace it. You know, I, hmm. I knew that there was something in me. And I think that's a common trait with people with ADHD is that, you know, there is a tremendous amount of potential. It's just a matter of accessing it and applying it into a world that works differently. And that's just really frustrating. You just feel constantly um, stunted um, in releasing your potential. And David, I'm assuming ADHD is both under and over diagnosed in, in children and in adults. But I wonder when it comes to girls and women, are they more likely to be un, undiagnosed or underdiagnosed? Yes, for whatever reason, girls and women are more likely to be diagnosed with the inattentive subtype, which either means there really is this difference or it really means that we socialize people differently by gender and so it expresses differently. It, at any rate, it's a hyperactive type that you notice in a restaurant and you say, who's the hyper kid? You would never go into a crowded restaurant and say, who's the inattentive kid? Because they're not bothering you. In a class of 30 people, if you're sitting in the back, not bothering me, kind of underperforming, what's the problem? I wish I had 20 of you. But that means that mm-hmm. the student doesn't get identified and they're working twice as hard. Um, yeah. And I think what you heard Annika talk about was a gap between ability and performance. ADHD is not a disorder of ability. Folks who have this characteristic can be bright, they can be creative, they have lots of great ideas, uh, but it's a disorder of performance. And so you'll have comments on the report card, could do so much better, not living up to potential. And an adult with ADD may know that last summer for three weeks in a row, I got all my billing in, I did all my notes. Why can't I do that consistently? So that gap between ability and performance hmm. is a is a big source of shame. Wow, there's that word again, shame. Anika, um, you did get diagnosed in your in your twenties, um, and as you write about it, that it came and I believe are on medication, but it came as a great relief to you. It began to sort of help you pull your pieces together. Absolutely, um, you know, I will say that that was one positive aspect. Of you know, and I learned it through a friend, and this is why I feel like um, just being able to have conversations openly about it is so effective. Because I was working with a friend who uh, he ran a surfing school, and I was a surf instructor in a surfing school. And by all by all appearances, you know, we were just like a couple of doofuses teaching people how to <laughs> surf. But then he he started describing this sort of discovery that he had and um, everything that he was struggling with, and I was just like, wow, literally every single thing 
sounds like me. And these are the things that I've tried to, to hide for so long or that I've felt so shameful about, like forgetting to pay a car payment or, you know, different things like that. And um, so when I did get um, when I did see someone, his doctor, actually, because I didn't even know where to start. And um, it was <laughs> in hindsight, I don't know that the diagnosis process was really um hmm all that great. He was just kind of like, yep, you definitely have it. And, and gave, you know, we started on medication, but I did feel like for the first time there were things connecting in my brain that were actually tapping directly into that potential. And I went back to school. I graduated from college, you know, not to say that these are markers that you should be meeting, but they're the things that I wanted to be doing. And I was doing them successfully. And I, uh, I aced every class and I became the annoying person that was raising my hand in every class. But, um, (laughs) You know, so in a way, it was kind of this illusion that I had been fixed. But, um, you know, as the comic goes on to say, there's kind of a realization later that this isn't the be all end all. And it isn't really a fix. But I also wasn't broken. So, I mean, you're a human being like the rest of us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) With all the parts with all the parts that that we all have. And I wonder, David, for you, um, and it sounds, Anika, it sounds as if. Uh, medication was very helpful to you. And it's so curious, David, uh, that that a stimulant, which Rid- Ritalin or Adderall is, is helpful for someone with ADHD. It seems a little counterintuitive. It that does. We, right? Stimulate someone who, uh, some of who may be hyperactive. Um, but we think that the reason that folks with ADHD can be more restless and hyperactive, we all need to fidget. You know, um, I'm sure over the past... 35 minutes that we've been talking, we've all fidgeted and self-stemmed and thumped and did Steve Jobs number one, Steve Jobs number two, bit on a pencil, <laughs> whatever. We're all self-stimming. But when you do it more than me, I'm like, oh, you're hyperactive. If you do it just like me, you know, or on the other hand, if you're somebody that gets way overstimulated. Uh, so it's, you know, it's kind of like the Goldilocks story. Neurotypicals are right in the middle. We have just the right amount of stimulation, but some need more, some need less. So we think that folks are being hyperactive as a way of just keeping their brain online and alert. And so then with stimulant medication, you don't need as much of that. Your self-stimming behavior might dip down closer to what looks, quote, typical. And also stimulant medication allows you to do that thing I was describing. Like, there's something I want six months from now. There's a boring, yucky thing I have to do now to get that. So stimulant medication makes those future goals more vivid and accessible, Mm -hmm. makes it easier to sit down and do the thing now. But when I say six months, I... For a kid, it could be an hour from now. Look, if you if you um, use your inside voice for this whole 30-minute shopping trip, I'll give you a prize at the end. That's a long period of time to project into the future when you're young. Stimulant medication helps you do that. Stimulant medication is probably the best researched treatment for ADHD. I'm a psychologist. I'm not a prescriber, so I'm not engaged with that. But I just want to acknowledge that a lot of people have had uh, positive experiences. Mm-hmm. And to use Annika's words, I've been able to tap into this potential that I knew was there. So, uh, Anika, we have about a minute before I have to say goodbye to you. Um, so how do you, how do you think of yourself now? Do you think of someone with ADHD? Do you think of yourself as all these pieces that you put back together? How would you describe who you are? Yeah, well, I think I would describe myself as all the things that I am with and without it. It does define or explain a lot about me, but I think I'm I'm finally at the point now where rather than looking at this as um, a thing that makes me less than or is something to be ashamed of, I've actually learned uh, a lot of things about myself that are unique and that I'm really, really grateful for that I think are a result of having ADHD. And it takes a minute to get there, but 
Um, I do believe that wholeheartedly we do have some advantages to neurotypical people. And if you're able to access those things and not beat up on yourself and find ways to, you know, I, I'm, I'm still, I'm, I would describe myself as a work in progress always, but <laughs> rather we than shaming myself and trying to fit myself into that thing, I'm actually paying attention to myself and paying attention to how I work best and how, you know, what I respond to best, how I get things done the best. And tapping into those things and applying them to my everyday life rather than trying to suppress them. And it's actually, it's it's pretty great. Oh, that's so great. Well, I really appreciate you joining us uh, today on The Connection. Thanks so much, Annika. Thank you. You're very welcome. And again, she is uh, an illustrator, writer, and author, and uh, had a terrific piece that she illustrated in The Washington Post about her ADHD. Uh, David Nowell is going to stay with us for the rest of the hour talking more about ADHD. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscowane, and today we are talking about ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. It's a diagnosis that's been around for about 50 years, but with much more knowledge about neurodiversity, we are rethinking what it is and what it isn't. And again, our guest is clinical neuropsychologist David Nowell. You know, it was great, David, was to hear Annika talk about all the, the benefits, the positives that come with this particular trait or diagnosis, to use, a, I guess, an old-fashioned word, um, but that there, she's creative. I mean, her artwork is terrific and uh, obviously has a great sense of humor, and and I wonder whether we should spend more time talking about the, the upside of, of ADHD rather than the, the downside. We should, and, you know, when you're doing a clinical evaluation, you're like, hi, my name is David. And then you go straight for the juggler. You're going straight for the bad stuff to see if you meet criteria, to see what the problems are. And I do think it's important for clinicians to do um, some of this, spend some time reviewing the positives. Because I'm guessing that Annika would say that a lot of the positives of, of who she is now also relates to this constellation of symptoms that caused her a lot of frustration. It's the flip side. I, I think one of the reasons that I love this topic ADHD is because it's the intersection of two things I personally care a lot about, which is spirituality and neurology or brain science and meaning making. You know, what you pay attention to expands what you click through and rage read on Facebook or what you listen to the five people you spend time with, what you give your attention to gets bigger. You get better and better at that. And um, just maybe the most basic spiritual practice would be knowing today's date when somebody goes what's the date today in my mind it sounds like somebody says oh i left my phone charger at one of my beach houses how many days do you have that you're just losing them you know or when somebody says oh it's only wednesday god i wish it were friday to me that sounds like come armageddon come to me like a lover Hmm. i want my clients to be so fully engaged in so far as possible so fully engaged with their 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 days their weeks their hours that they're really loving this moment and they they're looking forward to the next moment, and they plan for themselves the next moment. Um, but what you're describing is being in the moment, right? Is is being in the present, not not sort of thinking six months in advance, but but savoring the moment that you're in. It's it's both because I, I do recommend my clients, you know, teenagers and adults, sit down on a Saturday and Sunday, sort of get centered and say, okay, what's done is undone. I mean, what's done is done. What's undone is undone. What do I want more of this next week? What's out of balance? Nutrition, exercise, social life. 
and then look at their calendar and begin to like, I want more gym. Where can I squeeze that into my calendar? So next Thursday at 4 p.m., I'm going to do this. And I don't have much time to call my friend Tony, but I do have a long commute on Wednesday. I'll call Tony while I drive. And so planning ahead. So I think the best way to be in the moment is to have given it thought beforehand. Because hmm. when my phone vibrates and I pull the phone on my pocket and go, oh, here's a dumb thing to look at. That's bottom up. That's the phone telling me it's time to look at it. But if I've decided Instagram is worth 30 minutes of my life and I'm going to do that from 830 to 9 and I book it, then I've decided I'm in charge of the process. And, you know, being present in the moment is not it's not easy to do. And it no, takes practice. It's really hard. And it takes it's planning ahead, I think. Is, well, that's interesting. Kind of a, a paradox there. Let me ask it you about, ask you about uh, partnerships or couples. Uh, if if one of them has ADHD, does the other person then become that executive function? I think of like Marge and, and Homer Simpson. You know, <laughs> Homer's kind of off doing his thing, and Marge is making sure that the dinner's on time and they get to the school yes. play on time and all that. Is is that how it works, or it's supposed to work? It's a classic partnership because, you know, the heart has the wisdom. You may have a list of all the things you want in a partner, and your heart's like, here's what I want. And so I think somebody who has the ADHD style may be drawn to someone who is more organized and attentive and, and able to focus on the future because it provides a uh, stability. And somebody who is really organized, maybe a little type A, kind of anxious, uses a spreadsheet, they may be drawn to the youthfulness and the spontaneity of somebody with, somebody with ADHD just opens up something inside their soul they, they didn't know they had. And so it's pure romantic bliss for about six months. <laughs> and then they're irritated. So if you want to support, you know, you have to remind each of them, here's what drew you to your partner. You didn't make a bad decision. Your heart is smart. Um, and I like to ask the non-ADD partner, are you doing a lot of things in this relationship because you're the executive and they'll say yes. And are you doing some of them out of a full heart and some out of resentment? And they'll say that's the mix. And then the money shot, the third question, how much of what you're doing in this family are you doing out of resentment? And I listen carefully. And I've had people say 90%, which means they wow. they that's really don't need one more. Th right. That means we need to hire an ADD coach. That means we need to get an accountant. Accountants don't just work in April. You can use them all year long. We need to get HelloFresh. We need to, you know, we need to see how much we can outsource so you're not over-relying on this one awesome, supportive person. And not be their service animal, right? Right. Absolutely not. So what right. happens when two ADD people get together? It's awesome. It's like a bouncy <laughs> castle, and it's fantastic. And I've seen couples like this, but it does mean that you know you probably need to make a decision to live near family. If you have an uncle without kids who has extra time, it could be supportive. If one of your, if there's a grandma or grandpa who lives near you, you probably want to stay near them because you're going to need support. Um, you're going to need to outsource this to somebody. You can either pay for it, you can barter it, you can ask for it. But if neither one of you is going to be the executive, then you know, somebody else will have to pull that slack up. I forgot to ask Anika, but she says in the, in the piece that she wrote for the Washington Post that her mother also had undiagnosed ADHD. How much does this stuff run in the family? It's one of the more heritable conditions in the DSM, which is our diagnostic manual. It's right up there with bipolar disorder, which oh. I think most people know is very heritable. Now, it's not a genetic disorder because there's at least three or four genes that give rise to this difference. In addition, there's early childhood experiences, um, but it is one of the more heritable. So when you have 
a child with ADHD. The odds that one or both parents have traits is pretty high. And do children can you can children outgrow this, or do they, you know, hopefully learn to compensate so that they may not look like they have ADHD but can function in the world? Yes, about sixty percent of children with ADHD will still meet criteria as an adult, which means forty percent either neurologically changed, they no longer have the characteristic, or like you said, they learn some skills to master it. And what does ADHD get confused with? Like another diagnosis that um, looks, maybe has some of the features of ADHD, but it isn't. Oh, there's so many. It can look like fibromyalgia fog. It can look like chemo fog. It can look like concussion. It can, with some age students, it can overlap and look like autism spectrum disorder. Um, It can look like anxiety, a pretty common one. And if it's not treated, or let's say it's you get treated for anxiety, but not ADHD, is is that a big problem, or is there an yes, anxiety it, associated with ADHD? There is about thirty percent of people with ADHD will also meet criteria for an anxiety disorder, which means you may need to treat both. Mm-hmm. But when somebody comes to me with both symptoms, my first question, Occam's razor, it, could this be just one? Is this anxiety disorder? making my client distracted Hmm. or is this ADHD making my client anxious? Could I treat one thing? And so the way I try to answer that is questions like, where do you see these problems that we discussed? Now review the problems, these things, where do you see them the most and where do you see them the least? And Hmm. I listen for those differences. It's, it's Mondays after he spends the weekend with his father or it's any day I've had two, two drinks the night before. I listen for the patterns and see if that, and the other question I'll ask my client is, if we had a psychiatric genie or a parent, if we had a pediatric fairy, they could fix just one of these things. You say he doesn't flush the toilet. He talks to imaginary friends. He won't do his homework. He can't get out the door in the morning. Just one of these things, what would make the biggest difference in your house? And I see if they can answer that question quickly and then try to drill down how the client is creating that outcome. Is it sensory? Is it executive? Is it mood? What about mind, mindfulness? And and I think anyone that's that's tried to do it, it's it's hard to kind of breathe, you know, focus on your breathing and and try to be in the moment. Is that helpful for people with ADHD? Very helpful. And when I recommend mindfulness for my clients with ADHD, it's not about peacefulness and relaxation or becoming the bodhisattva. Mm-hmm. It's about carving out a, a chunk of time, as little as two minutes. My meditation practice is two minutes. Set a timer for two minutes. And just bring my awareness to my breath. And when I get distracted, I come back to the breath. And when I get distracted, so Sarah Lazar was at Harvard and her group was busy looking at the brains of clients with and without a meditation practice. And they actually found brain differences. Folks with meditation practice had thicker cortex in regions of the brain that support interoceptive awareness. So noticing the little bubble of spit in the corner of my mouth, noticing my bladder, noticing my anger, noticing my sadness, um, that capacity, interceptive awareness is increased with mindfulness. I would never recommend, you know, a weekend sitting meditation retreat or an hour, meditation, but just two minutes. And the reason I do this is not, again, for to be calm or relaxed. It's to notice what you do when you're attending, to see if you can notice that you're off task and to bring. So it's, it's, a, it's a muscular, willful thing, just like doing a push-up. If you do two push-ups with good form or 10 push-ups with good form, 10 is a better workout for your pectoral muscles. Likewise, 
if you try to breathe for a minute and you get distracted 40 times, that's awesome. That is 40 mental push-ups. So I think of mindfulness as a top-down strategy. You're hmm. learning how you attend. Attention is a dead fish. Attending is a muscular verb. Yeah, what's the difference there? Attention and attending. Uh, well, the, it's a verb and a noun, right? That that's the but, difference. You know, she doesn't have attention. I just it's just so dead. But you know, how do you attend? Hmm. So, so after you breathe for a minute, I'll say, okay, um, how many times do you think you had to bring your awareness back to your breath? And you'll guess, and I'll say, can you tell me how you do that? How you become aware that you're off task? You know, like you're doing something on the internet and you realize you're off task. I've got 15 tabs open. Tell me about that becoming aware. And most people look at you and say, what? Like, okay, we need to do this again. Because I want you to notice these choice points all day long. You have a choice right now to bring your focus back to the moment, back to the thing. That's what mindfulness training helps us learn to do. Yeah, that, I mean, I think that's that's a, a good reminder there. Also, that Harvard study also underscores the fact that our brain has a kind of plasticity. So we can we can alter our brains to some degree. We can. And it's not easy. If you remember how hard it was to learn to ride a bicycle or play the piano, um, these things change our brain. Um, and someone on the autism spectrum disorder can learn to tolerate eye contact. They can learn to do that. My question is simply, you don't have enough time to learn Russian and to learn the violin hmm. and to learn to do – yeah, you can do it all. So I want to be really selective about the top-down um, – strategies that you pursue because it's it takes yes plasticity yes but it takes effort mindfulness training it's not easy um it's it's it, it does change your brain but it's hard but it's hard uh, it seems that it's important for people with adhd to to find that thing that they feel passionate about and then that is something that they can fully engage with um is it just a matter of trial and error or just part of the the attending to yourself to know what did it, what do I really care about? What do I want to do with my life? Uh, I love this question. So one thing I like to do with my clients is you know, tell me about a great moment. Could be winning the spelling bee, could be a juicy um, apple that you bit into yesterday and it was a pleasant surprise, interaction with a grandchild, some pleasant experience, big or little. Let's talk about it. And then drill down to the moment, the very best moment, and then to ask, what did you feel in your body? To take note of that word. Now let's do another one, like a camping trip, or um, you got your first car, drill down, what did you feel in your body? And then with time, if I do this enough, we'll find some recurring themes. These are the things that you like to do in your body. Now let's look at your calendar. How do the items on your calendar correlate with these things that you like to feel? Because if you do not have ADHD, Ignore this conversation. Stay in a loveless marriage until you're 65 <laughs> for the kids. That's good for the kids. Stay in a job that you hate. But if you have ADD, you can't live like that. You've got to figure out what sets you on fire. You have to know what it feels like in your body. And I'm not, I'm not asking what sets your zip code on fire or your peer group. I'm asking, you know, an intimate question about about you and your body. Yeah, you've said body about five times that this is you have to feel it in your body to know that yes. this is what you care about. Yes. In my workshops, I'll, I'll say, oh, here's a riddle. Um, why shouldn't you write with a broken pencil? Because it's pointless. And so I'll say, okay, that thing you felt, if you laughed, that thing you felt in your body, what was it? And clinicians, especially psychologists, will use words. Um, schadenfreude or orgullo, tan profundo or something. These are just words. I'm not asking. I'm asking, where did you feel in your body? 
you know, this thing with your mom on the phone last night, it bugs you. Where you don't label it, don't give me words. Because that dopamine shows up in your body as a feeling. It could care less about labels like happy, sad, schadenfreude. That feel-good feeling of, of the dopamine, right? Yes. When I was in graduate school, I went to an all-you-can-eat buffet with students from a bunch of programs. And because we were broke students, our agenda was to eat as much as we could for the money. And so at the end of the meal, we'd eaten as much terrible food as we could. We hurt but it was time for dessert. So the dessert was something like a peach cobbler, sticky, mostly cornstarch. It was horrible. So I'm eating it. Mm, I'm in great pain. And someone at the end of the table, Crystal with a K, she was like in American studies or something. Um, I said, hey, Crystal, you're not eating dessert. It's free. And Crystal said, oh, I just decided a couple of years ago not to eat food that makes me feel bad. <laughs> and I just, I thought to myself, and I put another bite in my mouth. Oh, God, this hurts so bad. I thought to myself, this is really how a person should live their life. They shouldn't wear clothes that feel bad. They shouldn't be, insofar as possible, they shouldn't be around people that make them feel bad. They shouldn't pick jobs that make them feel bad. Um, so if, somebody, if I said, hey, I want you to do a mindfulness training program, and somebody said, David, I might just go ahead and pick a life for myself that doesn't require me to have to work that hard and pulls the best out of me. And I'm like, do that. Yes, do that. Something we should all do, right? <laughs> Find that thing. I, it's, it's my challenge to me. It's my challenge to myself, yes. And the rest of the world as well. David Nell, thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection. Thank you. You're very welcome. And again, he's a clinical neuropsychologist with a private practice in Massachusetts. He treats children and adults diagnosed with ADHD. He also runs uh, workshops for clinicians. Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of the program. Debbie Builder is the senior producer of The Connection. Uh, Paige Murray-Bessler is the producer. I'm Marty Moscoane. I'm the host. Thank you so much for joining us.